Please pray with me. Lord God, you are incomprehensible. You are bigger than the universe. Your love is deeper than we can imagine. And so we cannot truly know you unless you show yourself to us. Thank you that you've done that in Jesus. And we pray now that as we think for a few moments about the resurrection, that indeed you would help us, that you would open our minds and open our hearts so that we might get a bigger picture of who you are and the depth of your love. And we pray in your son's name. Amen. Uh, Can you raise your hand if you are right-handed? Right-handed? Hands down. I'm sorry if I offend you a bit later on. Uh, Hands up if you're left-handed. I'm sorry if I offend you a a little later on. (laughs) Burger King cooked up a Whopper of a different sort in 1998. But that didn't mean that fast food customers were any less willing to swallow it. In a full-page ad in USA Today, Burger King announced to their 1.4 million daily left-handed customers and to other left-handed people in America that they had something special for them. The left-handed Whopper. The left-handed Whopper. Burger King said that all the condiments had been rotated 180 degrees to suit the left-handed burger connoisseur, to reduce the drippage and the spillage. The left-handed Whopper. So South Pauls eagerly tried to order the burger the next day, but they had to wait behind the right-handed folk who also wanted to make sure that they got the right type of burger for themselves. Make sure that they got the correct Whopper. You see, the left-handeds were not the only ones who were fooled. They thought, the thought that a burger is basically circular, you know, um, didn't even cross their minds. It was April Fool's Day, 1998. It's April Fool's Day today. We're all fools at times. We're all fools at times. We're all deceived. We listen to the wrong voices. And we become oblivious, at least initially, to the consequences. Some of the Australian cricketers who have been involved in ball tampering lately have made us shake our heads. How, how did they ever conceive that they could get away with this? How would they think that it would go unnoticed? How could they ever think that it would turn out to be better than what it has turned out? Now they have to live with the grave consequences for the rest of their lives. 
as we've worked our way through the week leading up to Jesus' resurrection in Matthew 21 to 27, there have been times when we've stopped and we've shaken our heads in disbelief. How could the people not understand yet? Why were they always drawing the wrong conclusions and listening to the wrong voices? How could they make such unwise, foolish decisions? And if you're like me, you probably paused a few times and shook your head and thought, don't tell anyone, but I am so like that. We are all fools at heart. Many people in our world think that this whole story, this whole story from beginning to end is utter foolishness. They especially uh, take um, criticism at, at this last week that we've been looking at, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And you've heard their voices. Oh, those ancient people were so superstitious and so easily misled. We are far more sophisticated thinkers. We are more well-educated and we have access to science. Those poor fools, we pity them. That they had to resort to fantasy and make-believe just to get through life. We have no need of such things. We've got all it takes to face life and all that life can throw at us. But we are all prone to foolishness. For me, the greatest foolishness is to not thoroughly investigate and weigh up this evidence personally. For if there is a God who sent his son, then to disregard him just on hearsay, like Pilate, is to make the biggest mistake, to make the poorest decision that anyone can. In 1930, there was a book published called Who Moved the Stone? The author was Frank Morrison. It's an in-depth exploration of what happened between the death of Jesus and his resurrection as recorded in the Bible. Morrison's initial intention was to disprove the resurrection, to demonstrate that it was foolishness, utter foolishness. However, his final conclusion is the complete opposite to that. Writing the book, doing the investigation personally, changed Morrison's mind and more. It changed his life completely. Now it would be utter foolishness indeed on my behalf to believe that I could convince anyone, anyone of God's existence or the truth of the resurrection. You see, that's ultimately God's work and not mine. Only God can change minds. Only God can change hearts. Only God can make himself known. And he has. And he has promised that all those who seek and keep on seeking, they will find and keep on finding. 
Today, I want to briefly share with you a few reasons why I personally believe in the resurrection. And I'm going to do it a bit differently. I'm going to step back. I'm not going to put the microscope on, on this text. I'm going to look at things a bit differently. But I do want you to look at this text and each of the Gospels to give them a thorough investigation to seek and see if God does help you to find what we're all looking for. I believe in the resurrection. Now what I'm going to give you is not an exhaustive list of reasons, but some I have that you might think are a bit quirky, a bit different. They're in no particular order, but I've grouped them under some broad headings, Bible, creation, God. I believe in the resurrection because I believe that the Gospels are authentic, reliable, historical documents that have stood up to the most intense scrutiny for centuries. They are written by eyewitnesses and have eyewitnesses accounts. And these eyewitnesses are weak, feeble, ordinary people just like you. These eyewitnesses are doubters. Some of them even doubt after they've seen the Lord Jesus. If we were to have read through to the end of chapter 28, when the people get up onto the, when the disciples gather to meet Jesus on the mountain before the Great Commission, it says they worshipped him and some doubted. Yet in the end, many of these followers were pre- prepared to die for their belief and their unwavering witness to the truth of this message, he is risen. He is risen. And when you think about it, if you were really wanting to convince people about Jesus, would you make up a story like this? With so many seeming weird bits, so many seeming bits that don't quite fit together? M. Scott Peck, in his book, Further Along the Road, Less Travelled, writes this. I was absolutely thunderstruck by the ordinary reality of the man I found in the Gospels. I discovered a man who was almost continually frustrated. His frustration leaps out from virtually every page. What do I have to say to you? How many times do I have to say this to you? What do I have to do to get through to you? I also discovered a man who was frequently sad, sometimes distressed and depressed, frequently anxious and on least one occasion scared. A man who was terribly, terribly lonely yet often desperately needed to be alone. I discovered a man so incredibly real that no one could have made him up. I believe in the resurrection 
because I believe in the reliability of the Bible. I believe in the resurrection because of creation. Because of creation. We have power, knowledge, wisdom, foresight, insight, love. But we are restricted by time and space. We are limited. We are finite beings. We are flesh and blood. And we see ourselves predominantly as physical people, often rejecting or forgetting that we might also be spiritual beings. We have a beginning. We have an end. We are limited. We are finite. Conversely, God, by definition, is infinite. God has unrestricted wisdom, unrestricted knowledge, insight, foresight, power and love. God is beyond time and space. No beginning, no end. He is from everlasting to everlasting, eternal. God is spirit. God is limitless. We are born into life and called to live in paradox and tension. We are finite, but at the very core of our beings, we long, we long to be infinite. We are limited, but we yearn. We yearn to, to break free and be limitless. And so the question arises, how can we know God? Well, in Psalm 19 verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Some people say that creation has the fingerprints of God, has the fingerprints of a creator all over it. And if that is the case, I have a couple of questions. How many grains of sand are there on Bondi Beach? Well, it's countless, isn't it? Because it's ever-changing with the tides. How many grains of sand on our entire planet? The finite, the finite is a signpost to the infinite. Our whole creation is a signpost to the creator. How many stars are in the night sky? Well, if you looked out last night, you may have seen, I saw two amongst the clouds. But I'm sure that Katie and Warwick, who are down in Dalton, out in the country in the clear, clear skies, would have seen a countless number. How many stars are there in our ever-expanding universe? The finite, what we can see and grasp, is a signpost to the infinite. 
what we can't comprehend, what is too amazing and wonderful for us to comprehend. It is like we are hardwired to want more, to think and to know that there is more than this. There is more than this. And the Bible actually says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. I've had conversations with a lot of you over the years. And I can guarantee that at one point or other with the conversations I've had, I've discovered that you are dissatisfied with life here at some point. You are dissatisfied. We are all dissatisfied. We want more than this physical world can offer. This life points to a far better life. This world points to resurrection. Life beyond this life. You see, resurrection is woven into our lives. Death is an engine of life. I want you to think about the food that you eat, whether it be a left-handed whopper or a right-handed whopper. The food we eat is dead. Fruit, vegetables, meat, grains are basically dead or in the last stages of dying. But they give us life. They give us life. For example, tomatoes, as we know, believe it or not, were once attached to a vine. As soon as you remove it from its life support system, the vine, it is dead. And then will start to decay. We take that, cut it up, eat it, and it gives us life. It helps us to sustain life. The fresher, in other words, the nearer to the point of the food being removed from its life support system, the greater the benefit, the more nutritional value. Death brings life. Life Death is an engine for life. How do tomatoes begin? You know, seeds. They are buried. Because that's what you do with dead things. They are buried. But mysteriously, amazingly, from that deadness comes life. Jesus said in John twenty four twelve. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Here Jesus is referring to his own death. Unless he dies, death and not life remains our future. Unless he dies, death remains the sum total of what we can expect. 
like the tomato, the closer we get to the point of death, in this case the cross, the greater the life-giving potency. So if Jesus' death and resurrection is a nonsense, or it's just an historical event that has no personal significance and no daily impact on your living, it is a distant thing. And it will not, it cannot bring you life. Death remains your orientation. Death remains your end. However, if you place your confidence daily in Jesus' death and resurrection, death is the engine of life for you. His death is the engine of life for you. Death is the engine of life beyond this life. I believe in the resurrection because the God I believe in is not only infinite but the master of paradox. The master of paradox. Paradox stumps us. Paradox makes fools of us in a sense because we can't grasp. Jesus is the master of paradox. Death is the doorway to life. Hopelessness is entry to hope. Weakness is where we can find strength. Injustice is where mercy flows. Life comes to those who deserve death. Death is actually a victory. The end is really the beginning. Out of sorrow comes eternal celebration. The tomb is the place where new life begins. That's what I want. That's what God offers. I believe in the resurrection. So please, let me encourage you to investigate the Gospels thoughtfully and thoroughly. I believe in the, in the resurrection, so please, as you go out, look for God's fingerprint on creation, on your life. I believe in the resurrection. So let me encourage you to seek and keep on seeking so that you will find and keep on finding that God is God and God is good. I believe in the resurrection. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let us pray. Father, again, uh, we pray that you would draw us close. Please, we want more. And we know that only you offer the more that we need and the more that we long for. So please, as we go out into the world, into our holiday weekend, into work after that,
to seek you, to be alert to your work in your world and your call and your claim on us. Please help us to look for the life and to live the life that you want us to give. Amen.